The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, very warm welcome to Squawkbox. Uh, Arabina Gamalia, myself, Steve Sedgwick at the wall. That must mean something happened. Yes, it did. These are your headlines. U.S. inflation coming in hotter than expected in January, rising over 3% on an annual basis, pretty much thwarting hopes the Fed will cut rates anytime soon. Well, the market reaction, Wall Street sold off with the Dow posting its worst day since March 2023. And Treasury yields, especially at the short end, spiking. Now, the double-line CEO, Jeffrey Gundlach, tells CNBC markets have tremendously overpriced Fed action this year. To have six rate cuts between May and the end of the year always seemed like a lot to me, absent some very substantial improvement in inflationary data. Some interesting earnings news then. A wild ride then for Lyft and extended trade rocketing over 60% before sharply pairing back gains after the firm acknowledges accidentally adding an extra zero to its margin growth number. And NVIDIA overtaking Amazon on market cap. That's thanks to the AI boom, with the chipmaker now setting its sights on overthrowing App, uh, Alphabet to become the third most valuable stock on Wall Street. And I'm sure there were some ramifications from it from some investors. But accidentally adding a zero? What do these people get paid? But I mean, everyone's looking at the margin of these operations. They're like worried about it. Accidentally adding a zero. Can you imagine if they accidentally added a zero to the latest US inflation? I don't know where they'd put the zero. 0.04. In fact, if they put it 0.04, we'd be off to the races. The Dow would be up a thousand points. Um, it's many things today. Very important day. It's Valentine's Day. Gentlemen, it's too late if you haven't remembered already. Uh, it's your mum's birthday. It is. Is she watching? Most, more likely than not. Happy birthday, Arabino's mum. But it's also <laughs> the day after. What I thought was a fascinating day. And actually, I didn't think it was so much above forecast yeah. that actually that the market should be so scared by what's going on. But we'll come to this because there's a lot of detail which we will go through. From the latest US inflation report, which has shaken up rate expectations. January's headline CPI figure, as we may have mentioned already, came in hotter than expected, up 3.1% but down from December's reading. So 3.4 down to 3.1, you were hoping for a two-handle, weren't you? Anyway, core CPI, which strips out food and energy prices, grew 0.4%. That, I'm afraid, is the biggest gain since May. Now, breaking it down by sector, goods was fine. Goods was moving down, but it was the services sector. And within that shelter, that was the problem. Shelter was the single largest gainer last month. Food costs, costs also ticked higher. Petrol and used vehicle costs were a bright spot, easing around 6 and 3% respectively. Now, what does this mean? Well, the report dashed hopes that March is gone. Do you remember when we were saying some of the biggest investment banks in America were going for March and we were like, really? Well, that went. Now May's going a little bit as well. They're trimming hopes for May. Uh, and here you can see now more off, more like than not, they're expecting a 63%. We can call it two thirds, give or take, can't we? Or we can just put a naught somewhere, can't we? That <laughs> seems to be what they're doing at Lyft. Anyway, most people think it's staying where it is. Expectations uh, from 50 to 34%, uh, whilst the chance of a cut, well, 2.8%. Uh, that was very, very different. 
just a couple of days ago. But what about the market reaction, Arabile? Yeah, so this market then took a bit of a hit then yesterday on the back of some of this news, right? And uh, thus far, if you, if you take a look at just the session uh, trade then on, on this front, I mean, a lot of the market sold off, uh, particularly in the back of that CPI print out uh, then yesterday. Uh, it was all on the back of that sub three or that 2% handle, really what the market was uh, ultimately anticipating. I mean, it is still down 3.1%, as you made note of, Steve. So quite significant still that it is going in that downward uh, movement. Even the small caps, the Russell 2K actually dropped off then yesterday, uh, seeing its worst day since June 2022. So overall, you did, however, see the market uh, drop off then to its worst day since March 2023 then uh, for the Dow Jones specifically then uh, as well. So you can see pretty much we're sitting uh, across what's that then the uh, just a, an upward move slightly then uh, when it comes to the percentage moves then overall uh, for yesterday's day's trade, though Look, I mean, the S&P 500 as well, then as the Dow Jones taking that dip, as we made note of. On to the uh, Treasury session then as well. We saw Treasury spike around 15 basis points then, particularly the two-year and the 10-year on the back of that CPI print. Uh, investors then uh, cutting back their rate cut expectations then, as we've been uh, noting quite significantly. A two-year now moving to 462 Question mark again, a mark that we haven't hit since October last year. Does 5% come into play again? Is that where the market is headed towards when you have rates perhaps only still moving uh, or rather staying where they are right now? That tenure is still uh, moving up 15 basis points, as I made note of yesterday. 4.3 is where we're at on that one. On to the dollar crosses then. Uh, the dollar is trading near three-month highs then. Again, traders pushing back their rate cut expectations uh, after that CPI data. Quite significantly then against the yen, hitting 150 uh, against the yen then for the first time since November the 17th, adding 10 yen since the start of this year. Again, it has spurred Japan's top currency uh, diplomat then to hint that um, at the risk, rather, of intervention if you're seeing rapid speculative yen declines continue. Question marks will be asked whether the Bank of Japan's governor, uh, Kazuo Ueda, will also step in with uh, some commentary with regards to uh, any further weakness then in the yen on this one. Okay, I mean, I think for a start, let's just finishing off on what you just said there. I remember when they were supposed to intervene at 125, 135, 145. Yeah. So the intervention, it may be verbal at the moment, but there's nothing physical going on. The greatest intervention they could do, of course, would be to actually up interest rates and allow the yield to float even higher as well. But they ain't going to do that anytime soon, not unless we get more evidence on the wage price spiral that people have been talking about. Right, let's just go through a couple of points. I thought what's quite interesting to do is see what the analysts are saying on this one. Bank of America has said, look, the report reinforces the Fed's concern that core services inflation will remain sticky. March is off the table. May, significantly reduced. But we remain comfortable with our call for a rate cut in the beginning of June. Unicredit have got some interesting commentary. This is really interesting because when we go core, core, this is what we need to look at because the Fed's looking at the PCE deflator as well, comparing it to the CPI. Now, we're going into the weeds a bit, but listen here. The shelter index increased 0.6% month on month in January, the largest single contributor, as we said just now as well, to the core inflation. Uh, but the BLS data for rents for new tenants declined sharply in the fourth quarter. Now, just go with me on this one as well. The BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, index for rents for new tenants declined sharply in the fourth quarter, down 4.6%. Now, the index tends to lead both the PCI 
a uh, big pardon, CPI and PCE deflate in measures of uh, average rents by around three quarters. So the point they're making is, yes, shelter looks toppy this time round, but actually, if you look at the rent data, it's not quite as hawkish as it looks. I thought that was a very interesting comment. And just very quickly, Goldman Sachs as well, they believe that many of these increases reflect the lagged effect of strong wage growth in 2023 as well. Uh, We continue to think that the Fed will leave Fed rates unchanged at the March meeting and begin the easing cycle in May. And don't forget, Goldman Sachs, not so long ago, was calling for March. I'm going to make one more point briefly. Can we show the market reaction again, the stock market, if we could? I don't know if we can get that board up as well. Because, look, I just want to make a point. Yes, it was a bad day for markets, no doubt about it. The Russell 2K down 4%, as Arabile was saying, the worst day since um, the middle of 2022. Yes, we saw big declines across the board. But the fact of the matter is the, the, the rally is still intact until it's not. The S&P is up 4.4% this year. The Dow is up 6% this year as well. Uh, and the NASDAQ, I beg your pardon, the NASDAQ is up 6%. And so these indices, and the Dow still put on, I think, about 1,000 points. It was, yeah, it was 37,268, I think, at its uh, low for the year. So the point is, the markets have still had very big gains for the year, despite that data yesterday. Yeah, so I suppose there, is, there would be some disappointment only if... You had expected the Fed to uh, pretty much, if you were fighting the Fed ultimately, right? If you were expecting the Fed uh, to really uh, come off uh, and and actually cut interest rates sooner rather than later. But the question then becomes, does the speed then of those rate cuts, which could come at some point towards the middle of the year, if not the later part of the year, according to what uh, is anticipated then, does that mean that happens as quickly? Still 150 basis points worth of cuts still anticipated throughout uh, this year then. Does I don't that think happen? People are expecting at that 150 speed. anymore, though, Arabelia. I think yeah. that's come off quite dramatically. Even before this meeting, it was down lower than that. But I think, look, the Fed has said 75, yeah. and they have stuck with that as well. It's the market that's got to come to the Fed once again, rather than the Fed going to the market. So don't fight the Fed. Um, the market will always try and fight the Fed. It will always try and express a view via interest rates and try. But maybe so if the market action, and I've pointed out, yeah, the market's still up for the year. But, but the fact of the matter is, if the markets continue to take a downturn on the back of this one, that will potentially have ramifications as well. Don't forget, there are certain areas where high-paid jobs are disappearing in droves, including in the technology sector. Yeah, I mean, that's already cut off 34,000 uh, jobs then in January alone. Right, Double Line's uh, Capital CEO, Jeffrey Gundlach, says markets, again, absolutely right, overestimated the pace of rate cuts this year. The market has had tremendously overpriced the amount of cuts this year. It was down to almost a certainty of six. And it seemed that the Fed, since they weren't going to move in March, per the words of the chairman, that that means they're getting started in May. And then there's this thing called the election that I don't know, they probably aren't primarily focused on that, but to have six rate cuts between May and the end of the year always seemed like a lot to me, absent some very substantial improvement in inflationary data. Sometimes the simplest questions are the best questions. So let's go to Stephen Blitz, who's magically appeared between Arabile and ourselves. You look great with the glasses. Don't worry about that, Stephen. I'll have to put mine on most of the time now. Stephen Blitz, Chief uh, US Economist at TS Lombard. Simple question. What do you think, sir? Uh, What do I think? Well, I think the Fed's going to wait till June. Uh, And uh, I think... You know, I think we're we're losing a little bit of the narrative here. You know, I've been listening to you talking about uh, the equity markets. They've already cut 
right? Because they've communicated cuts. They've allowed the market to price in. Yeah, the market's coming back a little bit. There's no question about that and pushing out the timing. But it's because of those cuts that you have an inverted curve and you're trading a 10-year closer to 4% than 5%. Uh, Does anybody really think that the Fed's going to allow the narrative from here to allow the market to pull that 10-year yield up to 5 or higher and possibly swing the curve more positive? That would be a very, very negative signal for the equity market, at least in the first round. Over time, you know, it may adjust to it and all that, but at least in the first blush, it'd be negative. So I think the Fed right now has its cake and eating it too. It's waiting before it actually starts to cut. It's still signaling the cut, so it's still supportive of markets. It's still supportive of the housing market. And I think that, uh, you know, we go on from there. I mean, I I happen to be more of a bear on on inflation than 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 most, and I think that um, you're not going to get back to two percent in the Goldilocks, you know, immaculate disinflation way in which the Fed has it uh, has it laid out over the next two three years. And in the meantime, the Fed is bending over backwards to make sure that there's no recession in getting to two percent. And I'm telling you, the signal inside those, the CPI numbers, and even the PCE numbers, which are admittedly lower, uh, is that you're not going to get the disinflation on the service side without a real slowdown in growth. And the disinflation that we're seeing on the good side is not going to go on forever because, you know, you, you only repair these issues about, you know, getting product to market, et cetera, one time. And uh, we've slowed a lot in the economy from 21 to now. And you're kind of running to the end of that. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just going to say, look, there are certain parts of the market. I'm going to throw all that out there so you can, we can have, we can have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Look, certain parts of the market will be oblivious to this. It'll be pretty benign, the uh, the overnight CPR. Other parts of the market are just hanging by a thread as well. Who is the most indebted and the most problematic in terms of their short to medium term performance if rates stay higher? I don't think rates are at a level here. And I think this is why I think a lot of people have made mistakes all along through their, through their hikes. The, the Fed is... Yeah, 10-year rates are higher than they were, you know, a few years back, no question. But the economy is stronger. Inflation is higher. So while the the cost of, you know, financing the liability side of a corporate balance sheet is up, the revenue side is up. Now, obviously, commercial real estate is problematic. And I sort of put that on the side for the moment because they're not big employers of people. And that's more of an issue about debt and and uh and and banking but by the way as long as this economy continues to grow and there's still strong profits which we saw in q4 over time strong profits does lead to more absorption of square footage and uh, and i think that's one reason why the fed's not staying up at night worrying about uh the office office building problem um, Stephen, uh, the Supercore has been uh, in and around that 4% mark for around seven months then. I mean, during the pandemic, that was uh, around 2% then. Key reason for that, the transportation costs. A bit of a whack-a-mole situation then for the Fed, would you think? Yeah, I mean, look, they're happy at 55 
because if you run my own modified version of the uh, of the Taylor rule at four percent, you're right on line in line with five and a half in terms of your funds rate. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why they're not itching to hike. Uh, certainly not. And if you look at Corp PCE, that's running closer to 3%. And it's more than just rent. That's a difference uh, on the service side of the PCE numbers. And that's running at 3 And if you believe the PCE numbers, then the funds rate should be closer to 4% than 5.5%. And I think as the months go on, um, I think that difference narrows a little bit. And uh, I think he's still in this sort of sweet spot for inflation for a little bit of time. And I think the Fed has room to cut maybe 25, 50 basis points before the summer. Uh, and then that's it. I think they go home through the whole presidential election and, and hope nothing big happens that demands their action. And they'll get back to it in November. Um, so you're putting back on the table a recession that uh, a lot of the market had priced out or discounted? Well, I think that the economy, look, we have finally have gotten to the point, basically in the spring of last year, to positive real rates at the short end. And so the question is, are these real rates high enough to drive it with an inverted real yield curve? which based on uh, using uh, PCE data as the deflator on that for the short end, got inverted in January. And that's usually 12 months from there that you get a recession that takes you to the end of this year, early next year. You know, what does the Fed do about that along the way? Um, and so you're certainly at a level where you can slow growth here, begin to slow growth. But the longer we go without a slowdown and the longer we go with growth continuing to be strong, then the Fed's going to have to face the question as to whether or not their 50 basis points real as being neutral on the funds rate is wrong. Because the 150 that they have now is if pre-2008 was easy. Yeah. Yep. It's only in the only in the deleveraging world of the of the you know post GFC pre COVID world sure. that fifty real became the operative number, sure. and and I think that's part of their Stephen. hesitation. Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. We're going to have to leave the conversation there. But uh, uh, some interesting thoughts, of course, this number, of course, creating some permutations throughout the market. Then we'll continue to unpack those throughout the show. Thank you so much for the time. Stephen Blitz, uh, the chief U.S. economist then at T.S. Lombard. Now, coming up on the show, earnings season continuing stateside. And here's one in Europe. We'll break down the latest numbers from Bill Finger, the CEO, Thomas Schultz. That's up next. And in Indonesia, the world's biggest single-day election draws to a close as voters choose a successor to the outgoing President Joko Widodo. We'll be live on the ground in Jakarta in this hour. Plus, we'll discuss the UK approach to development and competition in AI with Baroness Tina Stowell. Tune in to that interview at 9.30 CET.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Uh, welcome back. A um, bit of a hiccup over at Lyft yesterday, to say it uh, mildly. Um, Slam the brakes on an after-hours share price rally by admitting <clears throat> we've uh, overstated our margin in our forecast. In the earnings release, it was a typo. Talk about fat fingers. Yeah, the CFO Erin Brewer had to clarify to analysts on the call that the company expects, wait for it, 50 basis points of growth, which is respectable but not quite the same as the originally stated 500 basis points of growth, uh, a figure that sent the shares more than 60% higher. Look, the market liked what it saw. It just didn't like it as much as 500 basis points. I mean, who would? Uh, anyway, the stock pulled back uh, around $2 billion from earlier highs. My worry is for those people who traded at the top end, uh, both long and short. What does that mean? Are they cancelled? I don't know. Anyway, U.S. colleagues will speak to the CEO, David Risher at 1330 CT. Uh, you might want to watch that one. That's first on CNBC. And don't miss activist investor Nelson Peltz's conversation with CNBC's Money Movers, 5 p.m. CET. Now, Billfinger reported 7% growth in full-year revenue with net profit coming in significantly above expectations. The German industrial services company said uh, divestments of real estate contributed positively to its earnings and it expects profitability to increase this year, targeting an EBITDA uh, margin of up to 5.2%. The CEO for Billfinger, Thomas Schultz, joins us uh, now. Uh, Thomas, good morning to you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you have a lot to thank then for that efficiency program, haven't you, when you, when you take a look at these numbers? Yeah, at first, good morning to London. Yes, efficiency program is one of the things. Actually, the whole strategy, what we implemented and what we announced last February is working very well, combined with, for us, quite a positive market. Yeah, and I mean, is there more to reap out of it longer term, not just out of uh, 2024 specifically, where you say you expect even margins to grow further? Yes, we have midterm targets for 25 to 27, between 6 and 7% EBITDA, and we will achieve that. The reason why 24 is so important is that we will achieve our 5% plus EBITDA margin, what we promised for quite a while. Actually, the market conditions with a lot of turmoil, with a lot of volatility, with a lot of pressure on all the companies and all industrial sectors is actually helping us in growth and in profitability because we are here to support our clients. Yeah, Thomas, really nice to see you again, sir. I was going through the individual divisions and, and it is satisfying for you, I know, to see those big improvements, the EBITDA margin in engineering and maintenance, which has been underwhelming last year, uh, looking like it's going to be 25 to 4% as well. A lot more work to be done, though, to get those to the kind of levels you want. Is that going to come through demand growth or, or as my colleague just said as well, the efficiency programme? Are you actually seeing demand growth in what are interesting times? Yes, we see demand growth. And a big part of that, what we do, is, of course, out of own operational excellence, efficiency program de-risking. 
But another part is coming from new positioning, especially in North America and in the Middle East, where we have outmost growth seen around us in all industries. And the services what we offer actually support our customers to be more efficient. Talk to us a little bit more about what you're seeing in the North American region and Middle East, which is gratifying, but you're, you're not seeing in other regions. It's great that you've got these two growth drivers. I just wondered how that compares with, dare I say, Europe uh, and other regions, which are slightly more problematic. Yes, the Middle East, especially Saudi Arabia, as well as US, is investing a lot. We see quite a lot of international companies, especially Europeans, expanding their productions in these two areas in the world. That, of course, creates quite a lot of capex demand where we are well positioned. In combination to it, in both markets, Middle East as well as North America, we have a shortage of skilled labor. And there we as Bilfiger can support a lot. You know that part of the efficiency program is training and education. We have training and education, a higher skilled group of people, to make it like that, as a big foundation in our strategy. And we invest a lot of money in it on top of that, what we did before. Um, Thomas, I know that I've gone down this road with you before as well. And that's brilliant that you're seeing growth in those two key regions and that you're contributing on the education front to, to be, getting better engineers, smarter engineers out there as well. But what's going on with Europe? Why, why aren't these amazing opportunities occurring on, on this part of the world? Because our customers, when you go into a boardroom of one of our clients, they discuss volatility, higher energy costs, not logical, clear pol political decisions, bureaucracy up to the, I never imagined that, that, that this could happen in Europe, to be honest. And all of that creates an environment of hesitation, an environment of looking where can we as a chemical company increase efficiency to counteract on higher energy cost, higher cost for labor, and so on. We as Bilfinger are really targeting exactly that part. We go in, we offer, we offer people, we offer labor, we offer skill, and we offer solutions to be more efficient, which at the end of the day actually is a higher sustainability level and actually for our customers more profit on the bottom line. And that in Europe with such a big installed base is a very good business for us. Yeah, Thomas, after buying uh, stock and, uh, you know, key units of that business, the one that you'll complete then the first half of uh, this year, uh, will you be remaining a little bit more acquisitive and in which areas would you be looking to add to? Yeah, the, when we look into growth, then organic growth all over the regions where we act, Europe as well as Middle East as well as North America. When we look into M&A, we said it loud and clear, we are only interested to take over companies into our family with a skill set which is already in our existing in our company. That means close to the core. Of course, we look into North America. Of course, we look into the Middle East. But of course, we look into some parts in Europe too. So we see growth in all areas and some more percentage-wise like North America, Middle East, and some more on the volume side like in Europe. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.